Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, I welcome Mr. Michael Coles, a longtime Atlanta resident, civic leader, entrepreneur, and all-around successful guy. Michael Coles embodies the word entrepreneur as well as the word resilient. In his recent memoir, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Business Success in Life, Coles tells some dramatic stories. Well, actually, some incredible stories about facing adversity and overcoming them to the extreme. I'm not going to say any more. I want you to listen to our conversation. I know you'll get a lot out of it as I did, so listen up. The Black Hall Studios podcast is pleased to welcome Mr. Michael Coles. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. We're here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's another beautiful day here. And today we are fortunate to have a seasoned entrepreneur on the program, Michael Coles, co-founder of the Great American Cookie Company and the former CEO of Caribou Coffee. He recently wrote a book called Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business Life. Michael, welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Glad you're here. Well, I'm glad to be here, uh, Ryan, and uh, I'm glad you're having a beautiful day in Atlanta. I wish uh, I were back in Atlanta. We've been in Wyoming uh, since March, and frankly, uh, it's it's great to be here. But you know, I have a a long history of being in Atlanta, and I really miss uh, the things that I'm involved in, as well as a lot of friends and. Um, I know this is uh, this is a difficult time for a lot of people. It certainly is. Did you grow up in Atlanta? You know, I didn't grow. I wasn't born in Atlanta, but I've been in Atlanta since I was uh, in my early 20s. And uh, it's the longest I've ever obviously lived anywhere. So it's my home. And I consider it to be my home. Now, you grew up in New York. Is that right? Well, I, I was born in New York, um, lived there till I was four and then moved to Buffalo, New York and lived there until I was 12, and then moved to 
uh, Miami. <laughs> I, I take it you didn't like the cold. It was had no, I had no choice. I was you know twelve years old. My parents kind of told me where I was going to live, and so uh, yeah, so we moved to Miami. And when we first moved there, I thought you know this was going to be fantastic. After leaving Buffalo, you know I thought this was going to be all about you know teenage girls in bikinis. And um, but my life changed pretty dramatically once we got there. I didn't. I never really got to see much of the beach except when I worked on it. So most people who move from New York to Miami have ties to the mob. <laughs> um, I, I will just say we're not going to go there. I will just say I moved there with my folks. <laughs> I moved there with my folks. And my dad pretty much struggled uh, from the time I was 12. Hmm. Um, so it's a whole long, it's a long story for another day. Yeah. How old were you when you started to think entrepreneurial thoughts? Um, probably, um, my dad went, when my dad went bankrupt when I was 10 and we lost our house and I had to give away my dog and at 10, I thought bankruptcy was you lose your house and you have to give away your dog. I didn't know much more about it at 10. Uh, and we had, we virtually, you know, we, things kind of felt the same because we had our furniture when we moved back to an apartment, but, um, there was no spending money. And so I've had to figure out ways to make money, uh, you know, to buy, you know, even just toys, things like that. And so, uh, and when we first moved, I started raking leaves, uh, in Buffalo. Uh, we moved, you know, sometime, uh, that, that summer. And then when fall came, I got some jobs raking leaves. And then I figured in my entrepreneurial skill that now I could turn all those jobs into snow removal. And so um, I didn't think it through because I was very little for my age. And um, when you rake leaves, there's no urgency because you can take a week over 10 homes and rake everybody's leaves and everybody's happy. But when it snows in Buffalo, everybody expects their driveway and sidewalk shoveled that day. And so I couldn't do it on my own. And uh, I had taken most of the jobs away from most of my friends. And so uh, one of my friends came to me who was very upset over the fact that he had lost his shoveling job to me. And so I hired him. And I think we got 50 cents to do a driveway and 25 cents to do a sidewalk. And so I took a cut. So it was my first franchise business. And, uh, and, and more than likely, if we had stayed in Buffalo, I probably would have had like this big snow removal business by now, but uh, you know we moved we moved to Florida just in the nick of time. Well, clearly there's some snow removal king of of Buffalo. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. But you know, I, I'm sure I would have gone head to head with them. You know, <laughs> I'm sure he would have been in trouble. Yeah, we moved to Florida, and I was very fortunate. I, I went to work um, at 13 for a guy named Irving Settler who had a, a retail store called Dorwins. And um, basically, I worked for him from the time I was 13 until I was 19. Well, you touched on it a little bit with your father's bankruptcy. But most entrepreneurs have some trauma or a series of traumas in their lives that lead them to have a drive to do the crazy life of being an entrepreneur. What are some of the traumas besides 
your father's bankruptcy that you think shaped your psychology into that of an entrepreneurial spirit? Well, you know, I, I, I can relate uh, back to uh, a story. I once asked the same question to my first real boss, Irving. I asked him why he was always why he was willing to take the risk as and I don't even know the word entrepreneur at the time. But I said, why were you willing to take uh, the risk to, you know, going to your own business as opposed to working for somebody else? Because he's a very talented guy. And he said, you know, every time I, I would apply for a job, people always wanted to pay me what I was worth. And I wouldn't work for that little. So <laughs> That's a great, I, I, I completely and, relate to that sentiment. And, and I think in many ways, um, that's what kind of drove me to be an entrepreneur is that I wanted to have control over my own destiny, whether it was, ma you know, making mistakes and having to pick myself up and start over again, which you hope you don't do, but you know you're going to do. Because as you know, I, as I've read a little bit about you, uh, the road uh, to being successful is not a straight line. And it has lots of curves and lots of ups and downs. And the question for being successful is how many times are you willing to get back up? It's not a question of getting knocked down. And so um, my entrepreneurial journey, I think, began even while I was working for Irving as a kid. I started out as a stock boy, but by the time I was 16, I was doing all the buying for the store and managing the store. And I got that in my uh, kind of my blood, just, just the idea of being able to do something like that and build your own business and set your own destiny, whether the curves would be there or not, just got me very, very excited. And I promise you, though, I mean, I thought my life would be in the clothing business because I loved it. And uh, was in it for a very, very long time uh, until I went into the cookie business, which I thought would be a temporary business. But again, it was very entrepreneurial. Um, and, uh, you know, fate stepped in and um, cookies became my destiny until it became coffee. <laughs> well, and I'm I'm very interested in that uh, for a personal reason, which is that my mother makes probably the best cookies on the planet. And she always has. And not just like that I would say that. Everybody who's ever had her cookies is like, these are the greatest cookies I've ever had in my life. And she's made them for people's weddings and uh, you know, just all sorts of celebrations that people will say, hey, would you make 500 cookies? And she'll do it like out of just passion. It's amazing. Maybe we're, we're talking about a partnership here. Who knows? I, I mean, really, like, I mean, this woman really needs somebody to help her get into business and cookies, but, or at least take her recipes and run with it. I don't know if she's yeah. got, I don't know if she's wired for entrepreneurship, but she's certainly wired to bless people with things that are baked with love and goodness, you know? So she's, she's an amazing mother and a fabulous baker, but I'm not That's sure if she's like naturally inclined to have the, tenacity that it takes to succeed as an entrepreneur. Well, and also let's remember this, that if every great product made you a success, there'd be a lot more successful people. It's a lot more than just product uh, that you have to deliver to consumers uh, to become a success. Product is just a small part of it. In my book, I talk about the formula, which is a simple formula that I taught used at Caribou which is P, the letter P, plus the letter E, plus the letter S like Sam, equals 
capital E, capital F, which stands for product plus environment plus service equals the experience factor. Mm. And uh, a lot of people forget the fact that you got to deliver all three of those things, no matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter whether it's a product or a process, whatever it may be. It, you, you've got to try to deliver on all three of those principles to every single person or they're going to find somewhere else to go that they can get a better experience. Because the truth is, is that whether you're in the retail business, the doctor business, banking business, whatever it may be, people have lots of choices today, especially with the internet, uh, where everybody knows what every business is doing. You've got to deliver in a way that I would call old school retailing, uh, where people knew who you were, knew your family, knew your birthdays, knew anniversaries, knew everything. And in, in a lot of ways, the internet has given us the ability to do that in a much less expensive way than when I was a kid growing up. So you're in the clothing business. How do you get inspired to go into the cookie business? So I had, uh, this was, uh, 1977. Um, I had three young kids and I was doing a lot of traveling. I was traveling about three days a week. The industry had dramatically changed. It was moving uh, to Asia. And I knew that if I was going to stay in the clothing business and the way I was, that I was going to have to start uh, traveling uh, overseas. And instead of being on three days a week, I was going to have to be gone three weeks a month. And I just didn't want to do that. And so I had a clothing company at the time with a partner, coincidentally called the Great American Clothing Company. And um, I came back uh, after I was in California and saw a cookie store in a mall and basically decided I was going to get out of the clothing business, at least in the way I was in it. And that while I was figuring out what I was going to do, I was going to open a single cookie store just so I would have some income. But I never expected to be in the cookie business full time. I thought it would just be something I would do while I figured out what my real business was going to be. Uh, and we opened our first store at Perimeter Mall. And about six weeks after we opened the store, I was involved in a near fatal motorcycle accident. I was told I would never walk normally again. And so back then there was no American Disability Act. I, I was on a walker for almost six months and it took away any other opportunity I might have had. I didn't have enough money to go to, you know, start my own real business. And so I was, had applied, not applied. I had a number of people asking me to come work for them. But back then you couldn't go into somebody's office looking for a job on a walker or crutches or anything like that. So, um, I, I had opened my first store and I had to just start focusing on the business. And by the time I was walking again, we had about, you know, 15 or 20 stores and I was still printing my business cards, literally 50 at a time because I was thinking I was going to go do something else. And, uh, I woke up one morning and realized, you know, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And so, you know, from that point on, I continued just focusing on the business and, you know, eventually we took what was an $8,000 investment. My partner and I each put up $4,000 to open our first cookie store. Uh, we borrowed 25,000. It's a whole story. We borrowed $25,000. We had to put up every asset we owned 
because nobody thought we could succeed in this crazy business. And we turned that $8,000 investment into the largest franchisor of cookie stores in the United States into a $100 million business. That's incredible. When you say $100 million, is that a valuation or is that revenues? Revenue. Revenue. That was revenue for the company. We had about we had about 400 stores when we sold the company, and they were averaging about 250000 a unit. Now they're probably averaging between four and 500000 a unit. Right, because this this company still exists. Oh, yeah. The company's 42 years old. We just celebrated – I'm sorry, the company's 43 years old. We just celebrated our well. We they just celebrated uh, their forty third anniversary on uh, June thirtieth. When did did you do you do you still own the company or did you exit? No, so sold the company in ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yeah, I I ran for the U.S. Senate uh, in nineteen ninety eight, and all the polling indicated that uh, I was going to win my U.S. Senate race, and so I thought the stars had all aligned because we had a suitor come along by the company. And I learned a very valuable lesson. Uh, one is that uh, the stars never really align. And two, that you can't trust polling because I lost my U.S. Uh, Senate race. And so that's how I wound up, you know, three years later, uh, taking over the reins of Caribou Coffee. I bought into the company to turn it around and eventually took it public. And then eventually we sold Caribou as well. Do you know how many times the Great American Cookie Company has has sold since 1998? Uh, since 1998, yeah, three times. It's three times. Three times. Is and it private equity? People, yeah, yeah. Who was private it equity time? bought it in '98 and almost ruined the company. They tried everything they could, uh, I think, to try to ruin the company. But the franchise business we had built was so strong that even with their uh, tomfoolery about running the business, they couldn't stop its momentum. And so they wound up selling the company to a very good company who really got in and believed in the brand and worked really, really hard to reestablish it. And just this past year, it was sold one more time. Uh, and the new owners are also doing a very, very good job of building on what my partner and I created. The new, who, who's the latest owner? Is that private equity as well? It, yeah, it is, it's, it is private equity, but, it, you know, uh, it's it's a, a company out of London, Lion. I think it's called Lion Capital as uh, one of the investors. There's two two partners. They partnered Lion and another company. Uh, they bought uh, actually five different brands that were owned by the company that bought Great American. There's Marble Slab and they have a pretzel company and a number of other companies. So there's five brands. And... Um, but they're doing, they're doing, like I said, they're doing a very good job of allowing the company to really build on what I think my partner and I created, which again, I've told this to a number of people. It was never to build. We never thought we'd have, you know, 400 stores. It was the experience we wanted for customers was to just be in the very best cookie store they've ever been in. And if that was 10 stores, 20 stores, 50 stores or 400, uh, when they walked away from the counter, they would know they had a great product and a great experience. What kind of franchise model was it? You know, when I think of like Chick-fil-A, I think the owners of or the, the local operators of Chick-fil-A own like 25 percent of the profits. Was this well, a, I think, a model like that I or was this more of a, like a McDonald's type of model? Um, so uh, the Chick-fil-A model is a very unique model. 
it's it's really not even a franchise model. I would say it's more of a partnership uh, uh, type model. Our, ours is, I guess, similar to McDonald's, you know, uh, but we, we set the business up so that people would want to have multi-units. Uh, when we had 400 stores, we only had 60 franchisees. And so most, as you can see, almost all of them had more than one unit. Some had as many as 30. Um, so it was set up not to be what they call in the franchise industry, more like Subway, which is kind of a buy a job franchise where people generally own one. They may own two, but seldom do they own more than that. Ours was set up uh, from the very beginning to be a, a multi-unit uh, ownership. So how did that work? Was, that, was there a buy-in and then a, I mean, what was what was the kind of financial so, structure? So back when we started, the franchise uh, fee was $15,000 plus 7% royalty. And by the time we sold the company in 98, that had gone to $25,000 for the franchise fee and still a 7% uh, royalty. A lot of companies break it up. They'll do, you know, 6% and then a 2% national uh, advertising fee. We didn't do that. We just made it all 7%. And, uh, and we never actually gave anybody a specific territory. We would give them a first right of refusal. So, for instance, our franchisee that was out of Houston, he never really owned Houston, although he wound up opening every store around the Houston area and around Texas, you know, uh, you know, all the various major cities around the state. Our franchisee in Dallas, as an example, didn't have Metro Dallas, but in fact wound up opening all the stores that we would give them. If they did a good job, we would give them the opportunity uh, to, to buy more stores. And, and the important thing about this was we were so conscientious about protecting our brand that's why we wouldn't just blatantly give somebody a territory. You know, we didn't want a franchisee that maybe did a great job in the very beginning, and then they get to a second store and you find out what their weaknesses might be, and then we were stuck with them having a territory. So we just never did that. Uh, we wound up giving them again. If they had done a good job, we would offer them up the next location. So this company that you started with eight grand and a loan – do you have any idea what it sold for the latest time on a valuation basis? No, because, you know, like I said, there were five brands. Oh, got it. So it was all lumped together. To, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I, I would assume probably close to a billion dollars, I would guess. Amazing. Yeah. So, but, you, you know, it's really, you know, honestly, Ryan, one of the things I just want to say is that, you know, one of the things I'm the most proud of, whether the company had 400 stores or really 100 stores. The fact the company and the brand is 43 years old today is a pretty remarkable accomplishment in, the, in any, any business you're in, to be able to say that you're 43 years old and continuing to grow. Uh, so I'm really proud of what my partner and I did, especially considering the fact that neither one of us had any experience in the food business at all. Do you, and, do you uh, think that was an advantage, not having any total advantage? <laughs> because the three, there were already three major cookie companies when we started, and when, by the time we hit a hundred stores, all three of them were gone. They were already out of business, and mo that's because the three of them basically came out of the bakery industry. We didn't know anything. 
about the bakery industry. I knew about retail. And so we had lots of product and lots of promotions and friendly people with big smiles on their face. We emulated our business very much on McDonald's, uh, you know, people smiling and very friendly. If we were starting today, it would be the Chick-fil-A model, which is you have incredible customer service. I mean, anybody that's ever been to a Chick-fil-A, I mean, the experience is identical in every single store that they operate. And that's the kind of thing that we tried to do there. And also the same exact thing I tried to do at Caribou when I got there. So when, when you sold the cookie company, did you feel like you could retire if you wanted? I mean, obviously you were in the middle of uh, running or thinking about a run for Senate or in the middle of a run for Senate. But it, was part of that run for Senate feeling independently wealthy? You know, you know, actually, it's a very good question that I honestly have been interviewed a lot. No one's ever even asked me that. But I'll tell you this. What I always thought, starting out as a poor kid and having to work at a very early age, I always thought if I could ever get myself into a financial position where I didn't have to work, I would just I would want to just retire. And what I realized in 98 when we sold the business, I actually found myself in a position where I didn't have to work that I loved working, that I loved the idea of leading a team. I loved the idea of building a great customer service base and teaching that to people the way Irving taught it to me. And I didn't want to retire. You know, I did some consulting after the cookie company. I've done a lot of nonprofit work and I've been pretty successful at a lot of the nonprofit work that I've done, but it's not the same thing as building a business and and inspiring another generation of, of, of young people to work in business and also to inspire them to be entrepreneurs on their own and, and talk to them about, you know, the great value of being an entrepreneur. Did you approach politics like an entrepreneur? I did. Um, it was great. You know, there's nothing better than campaigning on, on what you believe in and not have to go look at polls to see what the people are thinking. You know, you go out and campaign on the things that are important. I, I Look, I never expected to ever run for office, but I got so disgusted with the system uh, in the fact that people seem to be more interested in holding these political positions than they were about than taking care of the real needs of of the district or the state or even the country. And the polarization, as you know, that exists now since 98 is just, it's, you know, you couldn't cut it with a knife. It's so, and so that was my reasons for running. And when I lost uh, in 98, one of the things I began to realize is that, you know, you still can make a big difference in your communities as a private citizen and that I would, you know, re-engage myself uh, in uh, the nonprofit world on the things that I really cared about. And uh, and at the same time, I was going to look for business opportunities and do them both. And, and one of the great things that happened with Caribou is because we were a company that was located as we continue to build the company all over the country. Um, you know, we were able to engage ourselves in our be good corporate citizens in all the all the cities that we were involved in. We did that. It was easier to do it at Caribou than it was at the cookie company because basically most of our stores were franchised and it was up to the franchisees to decide 
the things they wanted to be involved in. But at Caribou, all of our stores, with the exception of non-traditional locations, were company-owned, and we could, in fact, get ourselves involved in those communities and be good corporate citizens. What What's the entrepreneurial genesis of Caribou, and then how did you get involved in that? So uh, Caribou was started by two entrepreneurs, uh, the Pockets, uh, who are from Minneapolis. Uh, they were inspired. They were loved the coffee business. They loved coffee. Uh, so theirs is a great story. They were in California. They were in Alaska on a vacation and they decided on that vacation that they were going to come back to Minneapolis and they were going to open up a coffee shop. They were trying to think about what, and again, this is the story. I've talked to them. They've continued to maintain it's a true story. Uh, and they were sitting on this mountains, mountainside drinking coffee and a herd of caribou ran by and they looked at each other at the same time and said, caribou coffee. And so they decided they would create this lodge atmosphere, very different than what Starbucks was. And they would begin, uh, opening, uh, their first store, uh, in Minneapolis. They had a partner, uh, in the first store and maybe a, a partner uh, in many of the locations as they, you know, they, they sold, uh, took in partners to put up some of the money again, cause they were all company owned, uh, to begin to develop the business. There were about 180 stores, uh, when I got there, when they sold, uh, the company two years earlier to private equity. Uh, but the company after it was sold, it was just, there was no growth to the company. I got hired by the, the majority, the owners of Caribou at the time were majority owners, uh, to do a project to find out if they had made a bad deal or whether or not the company really had some real value to it. And so, um, um, <laughs> I started, uh, I started this project to, to give them an answer and I made the crucial mistake of any consult, which is I fell in love with the project. And one of the reasons I fell in love with Caribou was even though the company was not growing and wasn't going anywhere, um, it had a loyalty base that was like nothing I had ever experienced, kind of like the Apple customer base that, you know, Apple would never have survived if it wasn't for the fact that their customers loved Apple, loved the fact that it was not, you know, Microsoft and they were evangelists. They were, you know, these are, this was a brand religion. Harley-Davidson, another example, you know, a company that didn't have the greatest mechanical uh, engines and compared to what was going on out of Japanese companies, but their customer base was so loyal, you know, they didn't want anybody driving anything but riding anything but a heart. And Caribou was kind of the same way, even though the company was not consistent in its customer service, it had this tremendous loyalty base. And the way I finally came to realize it in this survey, I realized after going to about 25 or 30 stores, almost every store I went into, someone would walk in with a caribou baseball cap or a caribou t-shirt. Yeah, you know, I saw plenty of caribou mugs, just like you'd see Starbucks mugs. But to then and now, I have never seen anyone wearing a Starbucks baseball cap or a Starbucks t-shirt. And I realized that these customers were so loyal to the brand. And I got so excited about the idea of working with a brand religion, something I had never gotten the opportunity to do, 
And so I came back to Atlanta and basically worked a deal with the current owners to buy in uh, and then step in in January of 2003 uh, and become the CEO of the company. How long did you stay there? Uh, I ran the company uh, as CEO uh, for five years to 2008. I took the company public uh, in September of 2005. Uh, we had turned it around to the point where we actually had real growth and were showing uh, a continuation of growth that we were able to actually go uh, on NASDAQ uh, with a public offering. And then I stepped down as CEO in 2008 because that was the deal. I, was, I would stay five years. And then I stayed on the board until we sold the company in 2012. So 2008, that was the year that the Atlanta film tax credit was passed. Uh, no, the first, we passed the first one, uh, that when I was head of the film commission in 2001, 2001. that was HB, H, HB 610. And that was the first tax incentive bill for the film industry that ever was passed. And we wrote, there's been two since we wrote the second one, which, uh, I don't remember exactly. I think it was passed in like maybe 2004, 2005. And then there was a third one that has now been passed. And uh, you can see what's happened to the industry. I mean, when I took it over, we had a less than 200 million in economic impact. And we that included commercials and uh, like the, those days, uh, music videos and uh, the whole music business. We had about 200 million in economic impact. We passed that bill. Uh, and when I left uh, four years later, uh, we were over a billion in economic impact. And today it's, you know, 12 to 13 billion in economic impact. And I just hope that the legislatures uh, today realize the real benefits of that incredible industry uh, and don't do anything to mess it up because they did it once before uh, back in the early 70s after Carter, when, when he was governor, created the industry and uh, you know, other states began to realize what a great business it was and started doing things to attract the business. And Georgia went from, I think at the time was number three uh, in the United States and dropped all the way down to like 12 or 15 when I took it over. Well, many years right now, Georgia's number one in the English speaking right. world. Right. Which yeah, is pretty incredible. Great. What, so tell me about the original inspiration and the conversations around that tax credit that was 2001. So, and how is that one I, structured? Because I don't know a lot about that one. Okay, so uh, in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1999, uh, after I lost my U.S. Senate race, Governor Barnes and I had been very good friends for a really long time, and he called me up and he said, "You know, I know you wanted to do, you know, you want to be U.S. Senator, but I could use your help in in our administration. Is there something you'd like to do?" And I remember saying the conversation I said to him. Is there still a film commission? Because it had gone from being a vibrant commission to just virtually no board any longer, no more meetings. The business was just dying. Basically, the only thing that Georgia was making at the time in the way of full featured films were things that were specific about Georgia, like the civil rights movement and things like that. There were a couple of uh, oddities to that, but basically that's what it was. So he came, yeah, he said, we have a film commission, but it's not been very active. I said, well, that's what I'd like to do. 
And I had no experience again in the film business, but I loved movies. Uh, and I had loved the movies that had been made early in Georgia. And so I met with Greg Torrey, who was the executive director, the, the, you know, the paid guy for the state. And we sat down at uh, a restaurant and started talking about what needs to happen to turn the industry around. And uh, he asked, I remember, I'll never forget this. He said to me, he said, we just got to figure out how to bring more business here. And I said to him, Greg, you're asking the wrong question. If all these other states are doing all these great things for the film industry, the question you should be asking is not, how do we get more business here? We got to figure out why does anybody come here if that's the case? I said, once we figure out what our strength is, then we can figure out how to build upon it. And so I embarked literally on a cross-country education project for myself, going to the states that had taken the business away and figuring out what they had done to do it. And then I went around the state after I un began to really understand the kind of economic impact the industry could have. And I started educating not just legislators, but started educating the business communities, all these various cities around the state, talking about what it meant when you had a movie like uh, Forrest Gump, that after the movie was done, Savannah had, you know, Forrest Gump bus rides and where the Dukes of Hazards were filmed, how the, what the long legs of those movies could be, not just the economic impact at the moment. And I did that because when we created the first bill, I wanted to make sure that the legislatures were going to get so much pressure from their communities that they would have to vote to do it because the communities were starving to bring that kind of economic impact to their communities. So we got the first one passed, uh, like I said, in uh, 2001. And we wrote, we began to write the second one, which was a much broader and bigger uh, tax credit. And, you know, I wasn't around to see that pass, but I feel like we had some involvement in getting it done. And then the other another one has passed since then. Well, the industry has exploded. Oh, yeah. It's and amazing. It, and it's, you know, the foundation, that tax credit foundation was essential, right? That's the only reason we can compete against the UK and Canada and really go toe to toe with those two major countries and win as a state. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I just hope that there's enough people out there that continue to talk to the legislature in making them understand how important this is to the state, that this is not giving away tax money. It is, it is by far gaining tax revenue from all the ancillary, uh, things that the film industry impacts and when people are making these films, rental car companies, hotels, you know, I don't have to tell you, you know, I mean, you're involved in this. You see what it does. You see the kind of impact that it can have all over the state. And that's the beauty of this is, you know, this is a clean industry. It's non-polluting. It's high paying job. It's skilled labor. I mean, it's all the things that you would want to create for your state uh, that uh, hopefully they will continue to see the benefit. Well, at this point, you know, we have arguably the best infrastructure outside of Los Angeles in the English speaking world. 
since 2014 when uh, Pinewood was delivered by Dan Cathy. There's been 100 sound stages built in total, which, you know, Los Angeles has about 350 sound stages. Took them 100 years to build those 350 sound stages. And Georgia's built 100 in six years. So the amount of infrastructure paired with this great tax credit and all of the crew base, you know, puts us in a place where we have an incredible opportunity to compete and continue to win, frankly, because we have a such, a such lower cost of living and inexpensive land that would allow us to even grow, which is not true for our competitors in London, Toronto, Vancouver, New York, or LA. So our, our positioning is fantastic, but all of it is tied to that tax credit. And so it does have a certain feeling, ominous feeling, that requires the uh, legislature to always stay in tune and the governor to always stay in tune with the impact that has been built really over 20 years, just accelerating over 20 years. And it's, it could be easy for people to take that for granted. So it's, it's interesting to hear the early genesis of this from your perspective. Yeah, and I will tell you, it can disappear overnight. I mean, it really can. I mean, I think all the things you just said are very important. We'd make it harder for it to go away. But, you know, <laughs> it's like I, I, like I tell people when I give talks. You know, if you, remember, if you think about it this way, your competition is going to be looking at what you're doing. And for them to know that they can do better than you, your success in all the things you've done is their starting point. So if we have sound stages, they'll know they have to build them. If, in other words, you can go down the list of all the things that have made Georgia what it is. Anybody that wants to compete with Georgia is going to know they have to do all of that. That's what I had to figure out. We had to figure out how, what are the things we actually need to, to become competitive in this industry. So we had to look at what other states were doing, and that became our starting point. We knew just to get in the game, we had to at least equalize that playing field. And so the legislature has got to understand, and there needs to be people talking to them all the time about the real tax revenue benefits to the state by continuing to have this industry be alive and be stronger than it even is today. This is not about holding it where it is. It's about continuing to grow it and make it bigger and bring more people here, more uh, of the types of things that are so beneficial to the state. Not to just kind of live, you know, say, oh, well, you know, we'll live on our laurels here. It's funny listening to you. you know, I mean, you have so much experience of business. I encourage the the politicians in the state of Georgia to understand that we are we have all the momentum. And when you have the momentum in sports or business or whatever it is, then you just press on the gas. Because when you have the momentum, you can't let up. Hey, maintaining the momentum is how you win definitely. Right? You win by five touchdowns instead of winning by a field goal at the end of the game. But you can't, you can't rest on your laurels. Otherwise, momentum can shift very quickly. Right. Well, it's a great expression. You know, the hardest thing on your laurels is resting on them. And the one thing that Georgia has to, has to do, which they always encourage people in a race not to do, but in this case, it's an important thing to do. You got to look in your rearview mirror and see what's coming. 
because you got to stay ahead of them. You know, you, you, you just have to be able to do that and know that there are people. You know, I remember when I was working for Irving as a kid, we had this incredibly busy Saturday. It was the biggest Saturday in the history of the store. And I was probably 15. And I remember after the store, I mean, the store was the biggest mess you've ever seen. We had stuff laying everywhere because we had been mobbed. And I remember we finally closed up at seven o'clock and we're cleaning up this mess. And I looked across at Irving and I said, you know what? These people love us. We own them. And Irving looked at me and said, kid, he said, we don't own anything. There's 50 people standing in the sidelines trying to take this business away from us. We have to do this good job better every single day to hold those people because they got plenty of choices. And I think that's Georgia. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think about this all the time. I mean, I, I know that there are 49 other states that wish they had our infrastructure, crew base, tax credit and momentum in the entertainment industry. Because as you said, it's one of the industries that can grow and grow and grow and have nothing but positive impact on an economy and an environment, et cetera. So when I'm looking at your book, Time to Get Tough, it really sounds like it's a book of virtues or stories about virtue. Even when you're talking about your, you know, your former boss who said, you know, we got to just keep pushing. We got to be looking in the review. We got to be, know that people are going to try to take our business. These are perspectives that are really like the virtues of business. Is that a good sense of what that book is about? So here's what I would say. One, I did not write this book at all to brag about my career, which I've been very blessed with. I wrote this book to inspire other people to do more than they possibly may have thought they could, to get them out of their safe spot and, and, and reach out for more. That, that was, that's the purpose of the book. And the book is full of things that went wrong. That's what it's full of. You know, there's a great, great amateur golfer, Bobby Jones, once said, I never learned anything from a tournament I won. And I think that in life itself, whether it's about business, relationships, whatever it may be, it's always the things that don't go the way you expected that define the difference between success and failure. It's how you deal with the unexpected. It's a great story in the book about our opening day of the cookie company, where we virtually almost burnt perimeter all down. On the opening day, we literally have caught the oven on fire based on our lack of knowledge. And that could have been the end of the business right there. And it was how you deal with those unexpected moments that allows you to be successful. So that's what my book, that's what my book is all about. Do you think you can teach that kind of resilience to uncertainty? I, I think, yeah, I think you can try to do it. I'm saying that. You know, it's hard for a lot of people to um, believe that they they can get back up again, which is why, you know, look, look, let's face it. Not everybody in the world wants to be an entrepreneur. Uh, not everybody in the world wants to know that every morning they wake up, there's all this risk. But on the other hand, you know, there's risk in just about everything. We've seen that today. There are people right now that probably thought they had pretty secure careers whose careers are very, very uh, undetermined at this point based on what's going on. So, but 
I think that, you know, I've, look, I taught a class up at Kennesaw State University. I taught a class on entrepreneurship uh, called uh, Concept to Counter. It was basically, how do you take an idea from an idea all the way to the marketplace, all the way to the marketplace? And the class was full of, you know, young people who were trying to learn about entrepreneurship. I think that not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. But I think that those who have that spark um, can be inspired and understand. And I guess, again, I'm going to repeat what I just said, that there's no straight road to success. It's just doesn't exist unless, you know, maybe you got lucky with some dot com thing <laughs> that you did in, you know, in uh, back in the early uh, 2000. But for most people, there's a lot of struggle. I don't know most, I frankly don't know any really successful entrepreneur that has not had some setback uh, that they had to overcome. And if, you know, if you can't overcome it, you know, it, it becomes, it's very difficult. But I think that, you know, for me, I've had more than my share of setbacks, uh, but you know, I think in a lot of ways, those setbacks have kept my juices flowing, knowing that I was going to make mistakes, but I was going to try to never make the same mistake. But do you think that kind of adventuring, that kind of exploring, that kind of personality that's driven to have imagination and experiment, do you think that that can be infused in someone or does someone just have an entrepreneurial spirit or not? Well, you know, look, I, I didn't go to uh, medical school, <laughs> but I would say that I think you you either, wh whether it's to become an entrepreneur or to be an artist or to, you know, to do a lot of different things that is virtually where you're doing it on your own, whether it's entrepreneurship or, as I said, an artistic ability, people that go out to do that have to have that, I think, inside them. I don't know that that can be taught. I don't know that you can, you can, uh, teach that to people. I think there has to be that kind of furnace that's already there. And maybe you have to put some logs in that furnace to get the heat going. And I think that comes from affirmation, uh, of things that happen along the way that make you feel like you're getting somewhere. One of the things I talk about in my book is that the biggest killer of people going after a big goal is not setting intermediate goals along the way because you get very discouraged. If it's like, you know, it's like I'm in a, I, if I had started out the cookie company and said I wanted to have 400 stores and that was my goal and on the first day I almost burnt perimeter all down, I don't know that I would have had a second day because I would have figured, well, that's it, it's over. But you know, I've had enough experience in my life to know that things just don't always go the way you want. But I think you do have to have that inner fire um, to get started. And then I think you have to have the ability to keep stoking that fire to keep going. I don't know you can teach people that. Yeah, you seem to have the kind of spirit that loves the struggle. Is that fair? <laughs> you know, as I don't know. I would say this. I used to think that I, I wanted my life less complicated. You know, my wife would always say to me, you know, I think you like your life complicated. You like to be under kind, this kind of stress. And I was in denial about it for a long time until I realized she was right. I do. I like it. I like the 
the stress. I like to see things that are a problem and try to figure out how to solve them. You know, I do that now in, in kind of the nonprofit world. I do a little bit of business consulting, but the truth is I work a lot in the nonprofit area. And I think what I'm fairly good at is trying to get to the crux of an issue and figure out a straight line to fixing it as opposed to a lot of people who don't have that straight line to figuring out what the problem is. So yeah, I think, I think I do like that. I think I like the turmoil and I thought at this point in my life, I would just, you know, be spending all my time doing things that didn't create it. But, you know, if you play golf, I mean, that's a struggle every time you go out. You better, so, you better love the struggle if you like to golf. Yeah, yeah that's right. Or you better but, love the struggle you know, if you like to cycle in the mountains of, of Wyoming. Yeah. It's, you know, all of those things are, are, uh, things that are really good for you. You know, one of the things I try to tell people at athletics, is a is an incredible way to feel that you've done something good for yourself, that you've rewarded yourself. People do need to reward themselves to be able to keep going. So one of the things I say, like, you know, if you're a runner and you go out and run five miles in a day, just think about how many people in the world didn't do that. You can feel like really good about something you accomplished. There's not always days in business, and you know this, Ryan, there's not days in business every single day where you can say, gosh, this was a great day. But if you can go out and do something every day that a lot of people won't have the fortitude to do, you can feel pretty good about yourself and be ready to face the next day. I would say that most days in entrepreneurial business life are not good days, <laughs> right? You know, it's, the the rare, up, it's the rare good day. Right. And the higher up you go in the, I would say the food chain, of being an executive in an entrepreneurial world, you know, you're hitting with more of the problems. You know, it's like when you're kind of in the throes of doing something, you know, you might satisfy a customer. But I know as being a CEO, well, I remember what my job has always been like. My job was everybody bringing their fire to me. And my job was being the fireman. And trying to figure out how to put the fire out, but more importantly, how to prevent that fire from occurring. That's really what entrepreneurship is. The higher up you go. I agree with that. The the analogy that I will often share with uh, young men and women who come to me and talk to me about all their entrepreneurial dreams, I say, now remember, in my opinion, being an entrepreneur is like someone who lived in in Northern Europe years ago on a beautiful farm and stared out at the ocean and said, I wonder what's out there. What if I just got in a boat and gathered some of my buddies and we sailed or rowed to another island and we just mixed it up and saw what kind of life we could make? I mean, these were the Vikings, right? These, these were guys who just sta right. stared at open ocean and saw adventure and opportunity and struggle and they wanted that and they didn't want to stay behind and farm the land. And so if you don't, I, I'll tell people all the time, I say, listen, if you don't have the kind of wanderlust and the kind of desire to struggle that is required of someone paddling into the open ocean without a map, then you probably are not wired to have happiness as an entrepreneur. Boy, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I agree with that. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, Michael, we're out of time. You are fantastic. What a fun conversation. Thanks. I really loved it. Thanks for being on the Black Hall podcast today. I appreciate uh, uh, being here. And uh, if anybody is interested, 
Um, my, my website is michaelcalls.com and I uh, would love to share uh, more of conversation with you all. And thanks again for having me. And I look forward to talking with you again, perhaps sometime, Ryan. Thank I was going to ask you about social media. Do you have any social media? Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. And again, my website, which we just really, just literally just redesigned, uh, has a lot of information, number of podcasts, webinars, um, has a link to get to, to getting my book. And by the way, the book, all of the proceeds uh, from the book go to Kennesaw State University's uh, foundation. So I don't make any money on the book. Is the book on Amazon? It is on Amazon and on Kindle as well. I love it. I'm going to pick it up right now. That was so enjoyable. God, I, I love talking to longtime entrepreneurs who have lived this life. Michael, thanks for the time. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. I'm Ryan Millsap. And this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write and share on Instagram. I cannot show you the way there, but you have all the tools within you to absolutely find it. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.